Let's see, I've been sitting in front of my computer for 10 hours because I'm working on this video edit, which I can't really talk about because it's not really official yet. But, but you know, whenever I start editing in anything, you know how it is. Time just kind of disappears and all of a sudden it's 10 hours later and you look like a scarecrow. I can appreciate that, but I assume that's a good sign that things are going reasonably well if you suddenly lose track of 10 hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a... that's um. That's kind of a great place to be for any work. And it's sort of a luxury to have work that you can do that with, where you can just lose yourself in it. And uh, you can't believe how much time has come by. Um, Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be in frustration. You're trying to put something back together. But generally, it's just a good thing. You're just concentrating. I assume that in the cases of frustration, 10 hours feels like 10 hours. Yeah, no, that is true, probably. Probably 10 minutes feels like 10 hours. I think the the sort of the buzz term right now is flow state. I don't know if you've, that's yeah. something that you've heard before. How do you use that? Like you say, like, I'm in a flow state or... Yeah. How do you use that in a sentence? I talk to a lot of cartoonists on the show, you know, huh? people who make comics. And like, right. as an artist, I'm sure you can appreciate how not only like time intensive, but also monotonous of a process that can be of just drawing all those panels. And they all talk about trying to achieve a flow state. Maybe mindfulness is a good way of putting it, or at least just really sort of like channeling the muse and really, really kind of feeling, feeling in the moment. And as you did today, losing all track of time. Right. Yeah. Like I didn't even know it was seven o'clock and Damon came in. It's like, didn't you have an interview at seven? I was like, oh my God. That's why I didn't even make an effort to not look like a scarecrow because I didn't even know what time it was. I know you're involved in all sorts of different mediums. Is is that something that you find that has happened across different platforms? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm very I'm very flow statey in whatever I'm doing. I mean, it could be like you know weeding in the garden or. Um, you know, working on a song or cooking or editing. I have, I guess I'm good at concentrating on things. What I'm not good at is probably relaxing. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like the opposite, like just uh, doing something (laughs) like watching bad TV. I'm I'm like, I could be doing something useful. Weeding is a very different activity than painting or making music or even even editing I don't, yeah i mean it is in a way but it also isn't because like when you're weeding right you're kind of editing your garden and you're kind of looking at um even like you know we use the the example of the cartoonists and I've, I've never done anything like a graphic novel or a cartoon but i was imagining you were kind of referring to maybe when they have to sort of reproduce similar panels in order to get emotion or something or something that's that's maybe more chore-like than just purely um, fun. But I mean, I think those are the moments when you're working that you're working on kind of subconsciously looking at what you're doing for the whole work. So yeah, you're weeding in the garden, but you're also looking at other things in the garden that are working or not working or things that you want to move or something you want to prune. And I kind of, I don't know, it seems like those kind of more mundane, those road tasks that also, that's a moment when you can kind of free associate also. 
because your hands are occupied, but your mind is kind of free. As I think you were alluding to earlier, I edit the podcast myself. And for me, editing the, the audio of this show, just editing like a long form interview is it's more of a mechanical process, at, at least as far as the way I tend to think of it versus anything creative. You know, it's really just a process of kind of tightening things up and pulling some of the meanderings and ums and silences out. It doesn't feel to me, at least particularly creative. Where where does editing fall for you between the sort of mechanical and the creative? Oh, I got editing is so creative. I mean, you give you give two different editors the same raw material. People are going to choose differently. I mean, maybe for you, you feel like there's more of a standard in a podcast. There are going to be maybe stories that you might include that someone else wouldn't, or the timing of the way you cut things out. Maybe you're not just cutting out the the um and the stuttering or the, the vagueness. But I think, I mean, editing is is such a, an art form and also where, I mean, for film editing or video editing, it's where you place those cut, cuts. And especially when you're syncing to music, that's really, it's like a choice and that's, you know, playing bass. It's not, it's not just obvious where you put, I mean, you, you think it's just like a one, two, three, four, but it's not quite so obvious where you decide to stress and you can be a little before the beat, a little after the beat, you know, dead on the beat, which I never am, according to Damon. Um, he says I'm always after, um, but he likes that. <laughs> and then they, you know, I show my video edits. He's like, yeah, you're still like editing. You're like after the beat. But, uh, you know, I, know, I think editing, you're making choices. But so those are aesthetic choices. So give yourself more credit. I understand to the extent of my musical theory knowledge, what it means to be behind the beat or, or after the beat in a piece of music. But what does that mean in the context of video editing? Well, I mean, even in music, I'm not saying like really behind the beat, because if you're really behind the beat, then that would sound bad. I'm talking about like, the, like in, like in video editing, say you have 24 frames per second, right? And so where you make a cut, it is, could be on the, 12th frame in that second or the 18th frame in that second or and and you actually really can feel a difference and it's similarly in music it's like where you know you're playing a bass line you're playing a keyboard part and the guitar the drums are one place and it's like you can just be like kind of a little behind not really behind where it's annoying but just kind of like a little back or you're a little forward and you're kind of anticipating so this is, you know i try and do my voice i don't know if that really worked but it's just kind of a feel it's not it's within like a second so it's, it's not like so much that it's annoying hopefully it's kind of a laid backness or sort of anticipating kind of jumping on things or dead on which is not me <laughs> From the point of, you know, I guess you would say in the musical context, you would say playing with feeling or playing based on feel. From that standpoint, is your approach to music and video, are they the same or similar? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think my approach to everything I do is really pretty intuitive. And I was, I didn't go to music school. I never, 
had, uh, I don't know, I still don't know how to really read music. I didn't do ear training, all of which I'm sure would serve me well. But just in terms of how I came to music and how I've always done it, I just uh, done everything by ear and, you know, have been amazed by friends and fellow musicians who have all that training and, you know, how much they could know things that seem kind of magical when they can just identify something. I'm like, wow, how did you know that? But um, I really, you know, in everything I do, it's, it's very, it's, it's very intuitive and not based on science or rules. It's sort of, you know, in graphic design, it's, it's sort of a sense of proportion shooting photographs or doing video and, and doing the camera work. It's really about trying to frame things so that they look beautiful or they're lit beautifully, but it's very, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just intuitive with me. It's, it's, it's not very uh, schooled, I guess, you know, I haven't had intense training except for just doing it and then seeing what works and what doesn't work for me. You did, however, study visual art at Harvard, which, you know, is a pretty good institution, I hear. Was that? <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like I've had, I mean, I feel like I've had a lot of visual training, but I didn't, um, I didn't ever take a photography class. My father was a photographer, so I learned from watching him, but um, I didn't, I didn't go to, I didn't go to art school. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't take a film class, not even one. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, no, I had the benefit of a, a fantastic, fantastic liberal arts education. I, in no way am I saying I'm <laughs> an autodidact. In terms of my approach, I guess, and maybe it's just how I feel about it. Maybe it's how even people that have, you know, gone to film school or have a, a, gone to Berkeley feel about their music. I don't know. I mean, I just always feel that about our, our I've always felt that about our music, certainly that it's there's so much that is just intuitive again regardless of medium Mm -hmm. the majority of people i speak to who went to art school or or studied music theory there's always a sense of unlearning that has to occur there in order for you to set your own path Mm -hmm. well i guess that's just being a curious person right you don't ever feel like you've just got everything mastered i mean that's the that's exciting when there's a new skill to learn. I mean, I didn't start uh, working in video till about maybe 10 years ago. And it had never even really occurred to me to be making music videos or to be making films. And starting to learn how to do that was really exciting. You know, I like I like learning something new and the challenges. And, and I also love doing something that I never thought I would do before. Yeah, obviously, you have been in bands, and, and I assume in those bands, you have been the subject of, of music videos. What flicked the switch in you that you decided you wanted to be on the other side of the camera? It was that I had made once a, a short tour diary when uh, DV cameras first came out. So that was a long time ago. And um, it was really fun and I really enjoyed the editing, but it felt very much like, well, that was a very specific thing to do. I was trying to shoot a, a tour diary and I didn't have any you know, script that I wanted to do. I didn't have any ambitions to make fiction film or documentary. So I just assumed there was nothing really 
else that uh, I was going to do with my new, with that interest. So I, I kind of just didn't think about it for a while. And then I got a new um, a DSLR, a new still camera, but it had a video capability in it. And we were on tour. And uh, so it wasn't specifically just for, for video. And I just started taking sort of short videos of things uh, that I saw that I liked, but with no, like there was no project, no specific goal. And I literally, it was, it was a very long tour and I was sitting in the tour van, just kind of staring out the window. And I was thinking about it and I literally was like, wow, like music videos are a really wonderful way where you can link imagery, like sort of poetic imagery with music. And it's kind of time-based, time-based like music, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a documentary. It doesn't have to be a fiction film and it's this short. And I just all of a sudden I was like, wow, what a wonderful, a wonderful short form. And it just seemed appealing to me. It literally was like, kind of like, just like, wow, that sounds, seems cool. And, um, we were touring with this wonderful sax player named Bahab Rainey, B-H-O-B-R-A-I-N-E-Y, and uh, who does a lot of uh, experimental work, a lot of extended technique. And I was like, hey, Bob, I was just thinking about like music videos and, you know, how it's kind of interesting. Do you want a music video? And he was like, sure. So I made him one and I was just like, I, you know, like we came home from tour and, and I just took footage and I edited it to one of his pieces. And it was really just like falling in love. I was just like, this makes so much sense to me. It's photography, but it moves and it has, you know, I felt like the emotion and the, and the, the way you could progress felt so familiar to me from music um, it just was like, oh, the photography can come to life in that way. So I just started doing it and I just started learning about it. And, and I just started basically asking friends and labels and people like who, who needs a video, who wants to be my next victim. And that was a while ago. That was about 10 years ago, um, kind of before everyone was doing stuff like that on their phones. But it was, you know, had gotten a lot easier to do just with a small camera. You didn't need a crew or a big budget. And it's just been wonderful for me. And I love the editing process. And I love the shooting process. And I love, I've loved the collaboration with other musicians, because it reminds me so much of how much I enjoy um, collaborating with musicians, like playing with other musicians. But I get to uh, do it in a visual way. And so it's been, it's been really fun. I've certainly experienced this in my own life, that there is just something that is, it, it was right in front of you the entire time. You know, you, you've <laughs> yeah. been a musician for a long time I and know. you've been a photographer <laughs> for a long time. I've never seen a music video before. <laughs> and literally, it was like, it was like the, like the dumbest aha moment. I was like, oh, music video is a really cool thing. <laughs> But that has happened to you? I'm struggling. So I, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'm sort of like struggling to think of an example. Okay. You're dumb. I just think we go through life and everything is so compartmentalized and we're always yeah. single-mindedly focused on something that like... Yeah, I think that's true. Epiphanies aren't always complicated is how I would put it. Uh, no, I, I, think he, I think you're right. Or maybe you haven't, you know, let yourself kind of go past the boundaries of how you define yourself. I mean, you know, even for me, um, being in a band and being a musician at first, when we first started, was a very 
surprising thing because I was in architecture school, which I eventually dropped out of to go on tour with Galaxy 500. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't what I wasn't in Berkeley at Berkeley. I wasn't what I had planned to do. I always loved music and I always, you know, sang and, and listened to so much music. But I, you know, it wasn't like I had gone to rock summer camp or anything. What was the aha moment when it came to playing music? I did it for a long time. And in Galaxy 500, even, I really thought, it's crazy now to think in retrospect, but I thought like, Oh, music is too fun and too <laughs> so, yeah, is that why is that why you studied architecture because it yes, felt like a real fun. a real job yeah exactly exactly and and you know music was like hanging out with your friends and you know not being schooled in it and making stuff up that you like that you wanted to hear but it wasn't you know, I was trying to also paint at the time and painting was like hitting my head against the wall. I would go to the studio and it, and it was so hard to, um, and it's what I thought I wanted to do. But it was interesting because, I mean, literally it was like it, painting was a blank canvas. And for me, it didn't have the sort of parameters that graphic design or music or even um, like filmmaking now where there's some kind of, I don't know, some kind of structure that of what you're trying to make imposes on you. I mean, I think other people could do that with painting. But for me, I just was like, I have no idea. I just like, I want to paint something. And but because that was so hard, I felt like, oh, that was real art. <laughs> so it took a long time. And I felt that way about photography for a long time because my father was such a serious photographer. I mean, he um, was a landscape photographer and worked in black and white and in very elaborate, elaborate darkroom processes and used big, heavy, old fashioned cameras. And uh, everything was an incredible, an incredible amount of work and so much technical expertise. And I thought, well, you know, that's photography. And so when I just was taking pictures with my camera and they were, and also they were color, (laughs) it was the black and white. It was like, well, you know, that's not real photography. This is is just too fun and easy. And, you know, it took me a while um, to kind of accept Oh, things that are fun I can I can take seriously. <laughs> so, I mean that was just me and my I have a kind of very sort of strict and kind of strange upbringing. That's sort of what I was programmed to think. Equate taking something seriously with it becoming a job? No, I don't well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like whenever I do something, I take it seriously and I try and really do it as well as possible, whether or not I'm being paid for it. I mean, I feel like that's, um, in my age, just my personal work ethic. It doesn't matter. I mean, it sort of gets me in trouble sometimes when I do freelance work. It's like, it doesn't matter how much or how little I'm being paid for something. I work really hard on it and I take it really seriously. So that's why I also kind of have to be careful when I do take on freelance work because, I can spend a lot of hours and a lot of time and not be paid for them. And, you know, sometimes that that's fine. And I 
uh, you know, it's completely worthy and I want to do it. But yeah, I can't really, I really take everything very seriously. So I don't think some people don't treat their jobs that way. I sort of treat everything that way. Because we're talking about a point in your life when you were going to school, you were obviously mm-hmm. young, you were trying mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, you're trying a bunch of things as, as, as most of us do, trying to mm-hmm. figure out which one's stuck. Right. And part of that is, is also figuring out like which one of these things you could potentially make a career out of. Mm-hmm. I, certainly, this is the case with a lot of people I talk to, and it's the case with me as well. When your hobbies become jo- a job, oftentimes right. that takes some of the that initial spark that you felt in it out of the equation. I mean, I think if you do anything with enough depth, there's always going to be parts of it that are less fun than others, right? Yeah, and then when, I guess, I mean, I guess the thing is like when you, when something is a job, it's just you have good clients or bad clients um, and maybe a hobby you can, you're just doing it for yourself, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I think I never, I, you know, I, I, I never, I just did the things that I enjoyed and was kind of very much in the moment about it. And so that wasn't really in terms of, it wasn't really good planning. I mean, leaving architecture school was not good planning for steady employment. Joining a band certainly was not. <laughs> that, 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 that wasn't a good plan for steady employment. But I've just always you know, muddled through and managed. Where does architecture school fit into all of this? Uh, both my parents had been architects and they both left architecture, but they insisted that I had to go to architecture school and that I could be an artist, but, you know, you have to be an architect. You know, it's funny because I have friends whose, you know, families felt that way about like law school. You hear that about law school. Yeah, exactly. You hear that yeah, about becoming a doctor. Whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. But, but go to law school. Well, I don't know for whatever reason, my family, because neither of my parents had stayed in architecture, but I don't know, just lack of imagination. They thought it was good training. I think it was good training for if I want to be an architect. I understand it from, from the perspective that it's a compromise of sorts in that it is, it is creative. And, you know, although it is obviously like more math and geometry based, it does use you know, some similar skill set or, or like a similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's facial and you're making things. I mean, I, I love a lot of architecture and architects. I mean, I, I, I don't think it, it's not a creative profession. It just, for me, you know what? It was just that I felt the scale of it was wrong, that it was about making things it, to be an architect, making things that were, you had to, have a lot of people working on it and it was all about looking at making these huge things and not with your own hands and I just really wanted to work more deliberately with things I could actually manipulate like I always thought I would rather be the bricklayer or I would rather be making something where I could stand back and look at it and say oh it needs to be a little bigger here, like adjust it. I had this fantasy that if I became an architect, I would like draw everything out and, you know, make a model and pre, pre computer, pre computer architecture school. And uh, then the, you know, something would go up and I would look at it and be like, Oh my God, that's totally wrong. And the proportions all wrong. And how, I, how could I have known? Because then this little tiny model and this idea in my head, and it wasn't something I could adjust with my hands. And that's just really how I wanted to make things. 
And so I just felt like that was wrong for me, like the scale of what you were making. It's also the case of you, you know, you, you do your part of the process, you do the the layouts and then I assume it changes hands. There's, you know, yeah, thousands yeah, of no, other I mean, people you really involved. have to be either you're in, it's like being, you know, in an army and either you're, you know, you're a soldier and you're, you know, you're figuring out the bathrooms or the emergency exits or the, the window details, or you're the general and you're sort of, or somewhere in between and you have a, a larger view, but you know, it's not about just making something with your hands by yourself and that huge amount of collaboration just it, it just it didn't interest me. I mean, I think I mean I often think about you know the films and the videos that I make, which are you know I pretty much do everything. I mean, sometimes I can afford and be able to have people do lighting or or assist me or do a second camera, but more often than not, I'm just there and I'm shooting it myself and I'm doing the lighting myself and I'm directing it or talking to, you know, musicians about the concepts and then I'm editing it. And then I'm, you know, and I do everything myself and, you know, it's like the opposite of, of a big production. And, you know, I see how things with big, big budgets and a lot of people doing it, you know, they can look really fantastic but I've just landed in doing these things myself on a very small scale. And I don't even know if I would really want to have a giant crew and hundreds of people running around or tens of people. You know, like I, you know, I, I see those, the fantastic things that people can make. But I also, I think it's, it kind of goes back to my impulse in architecture school, which is kind of wanting to just craft something myself. One of the things I was going to ask with regard to painting, you know, you were talking about sort of the absence of parameters and, and I completely understand why that makes it difficult to, to find a starting point, but also painting is very much a solitary process really for the vast majority of people to a fault. But these art forms that you've largely gravitated towards, although, you know, with video editing, there are large parts that are just you. It is collaborative. As you said earlier, it's collaborated with the musician and obviously making music, particularly in a band or, or a duo is an extremely collaborative process. And, and that, and that kind of has its own built in set of parameters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the collaboration is always wonderful and something that I really, really do love. And, and the parameters that you get having to work with uh, other musicians and you get to be surprised by the wonderful things that, you know, people play on your record or the things that they want out of their video or the things that they do when you're filming them, which is different than just you know, doing whatever I want, you know, do the blank canvas and just what I want. I, I, I mean, that's one reason I love graphic design is uh, you have the parameters of, well, there's, it, it has to serve this purpose. It's a book cover or it's text and it has to be legible to pretty much, <laughs> you know, and, but how can you take those parameters and how can you add some life in them? How can you play with them? Yeah. But the collaboration, I mean, that was what was so joyful about finding video and film that it was an extension of the collaboration that I've always enjoyed about playing music. I was thinking as I was reading up about the new record, I, I was thinking about collaboration from the standpoint of, you know, like, so obviously we're, 
when I talked to David, we, we did it in person in a hotel in, in Boston. Now I'm talking to you over this remote program. And that's just because thing, that's how things are in 2020 and 2021. And it seems to some degree like that is the direction that maybe things have been heading in for music and will probably continue to head in as far as doing kind of remote collaboration on, on music. But reading up on this, it sounds like you had been waiting to get into the same room as your guitar player for a really long time in order to sit down and, and make music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, working with Kurohara has been uh, an amazing long-term collaboration really over the last 20 years. And it has always been uh, something that recording together has always been something we have done in the same room. And I know so many people have made records in this past year and they've been kind of passing. I mean, people have been doing it from way before that. Um, and the, but we really have been working in this, again, it'd be more Damon's area of expertise because he does all the engineering for our records. We tend to try and record with people in the room and not just sending uh, tracks out to people and then having them send us something back, which we've done with friends and it's totally fun. But we wanted to wait till we could be with Corey. And that's why it was so fantastic that in 2019, before the pandemic happened, we were able to go to Japan and record with him because he had really, he had been unable to, to work or travel for a few years because of uh, family situation and personal circumstances. And so we wanted to wait till it was really possible for him. Was that this record, that collaboration? We hadn't toured with him for a long time and we really were waiting for it to be possible. And we had recorded a record in between while he was still unavailable, which was a soundtrack to a short film that I did, but he wasn't on it. And we really wanted this new record to have him on it. And so it was the most joyful thing to be able to go and record in Tokyo with him, be together and play shows and have him put down these tracks. And that was all in the fall of 2019. And we literally, it was like November. And we you know came home and... We're about to finish the record by putting down um, the vocals and and the and the final overdubs, and that's when the pandemic hit. And it was sort of, you know, our plan to have the record out in the fall and then tour in the fall. Just obviously, like everything else in the world, became postponed, and so it also became hard for us to to finish the record. Because we hadn't, although we had the melodies when we went over to Japan, we hadn't written the lyrics yet. And it was surprising how the pandemic hitting just made, it's all of a sudden writing lyrics seemed impossible. Because, especially if you, you're drawing, um, as we tend to do on experience and sort of emotional your emotional state or sort of your thoughts of that you've had since the last record, all of a sudden it was like, Oh my God, what is there possibly to say right at this moment? You can't ignore the fact that there's a pandemic and you don't want to just write only songs about being in a pandemic. And so it really took a little while 
to kind of figure out uh, our bearings in terms of writing lyrics for this record and what we wanted to, how we want to approach it. Um, which I think, I think, you know, we did in the end. Um, most of the lyrics were written during the pandemic. Um, there was a song or two that we had the lyrics from before, but it, it just became clear after wanting to, uh, was after wanting to reach out to a friend that was going through a really difficult time. And just a, a lyric came in mind that was sort of what, you know, something I wanted to share with them. And then that, that act kind of opened everything up and, and made it feel like it was possible to write something because you could still just want to be communicating and you didn't have to be commenting one way or the other on what was going on but just sort of having some human communication. What was the lyric that opened everything up for you? It's the lyric um, of the song. It's called Season Without Time. And it was inspired by a friend that, two friends, who really faced a lot very bravely. And I was so moved by how they dealt with everything that I wrote this. And it actually was taken, the, the words were taken from a painter that I like a lot named Charles Birchfield. He was an American painter from like the 30s and uh, not really, I guess like 40s and 50s. He, he kept journals and his journals are fantastic. And I had been just stealing phrases from his journals and it just all came together. So even the title Season Without Time is taken from his journals is is that pretty standard for you um stealing together stealing well. <laughs> i mean it sounds like you had an entire record full of melodies yeah in, in order to have that collaboration is is that the way you two work generally we've always in all of our bands written the, the music first and the um melodies and lyrics come after the songs um but with kurahara he really really likes to know what the melodies are going to be because when he's working on his electric guitar parts, he's really listening to the melodies and he doesn't want to step on them or get in the way of them. And he also wants to sort of be inspired from them. I mean, that said, he also loves it when we can tell him the lyrics, but we can't always do that. But he does ask us what the feeling of the song is about. So, um, but anyway, so I mean, just in terms of, of having a whole song without any lyrics, yes, that happens to us. But we did have the melodies because we went to Japan with the songs and with the melodies so that we could show Kurhar where we were going to be singing and what we were going to be singing. And But since we didn't have the actual lyrics, he asked us um, what sort of was our feeling about each song. So it was very amusing because uh, I just started in the studio kind of giving him these images um, to sort of help him get the feeling. And uh, they got very elaborate because he would seem very inspired by it. So it kind of gave me license to free associate. (laughs) But we actually wrote down what I, what I told Corey in the studio. And then when we came back to work on the lyrics, we actually went back to the associations we had, Um, you know, like, like, early morning before the sun comes up and there's 
you know, a low mist and you hear the rustling of the leaves, you know, a lot of very natural imagery or a memory that we had. And then we actually used droop on that when we wrote the lyrics. You kind of got to be a painter in a sense. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I'll finally get to be a painter. Can you have a feeling without the lyrics, uh, instrumentals evoke Mm-hmm. feelings in people, but mm-hmm. how do you settle on something less abstract than that? Something, you know, something tied to whether it's a specific place or a time or an event. How do, how do you settle on that without having any lyrics written down? In general, if I'm singing a song, I've written the lyrics for it. And if Damon is singing a song, he's written the lyrics for it. And that's pretty much settled that arrangement we kind of settled on that maybe after our second or third Damon and Naomi record where originally he was really writing most of the lyrics. And then when I started singing more, I kind of rebelled because I would be like, I don't want to sing that. (laughs) And then you'd be able to write your own lyrics. So in general, we've each written our own. So I think his process is a little different from mine. I will just collect phrases that I think of or imagery that I think of or do something like gather them from the Birchfield journals. But that was a very specific one that was, you know, once I started doing that, I would kind of want to make the whole lyric out of that. And I was writing them down for the songs anyway. So then when I went to Japan, I already had some imagery, but then I just <laughs> elaborated on um, when I saw inquiry was very responsive. And then I think for Damon's songs, I think I just made up because he hadn't done any work on his lyrics yet. I think I just made stuff up, but uh, we did write it down. So then, but you know, I sort of was like, oh, this is, this is a love song or this is, you know, there's some very simple things that you just sort of have a feeling about like, oh, this, this sounds like it should be a certain type of song. I don't know. I think you could do that with an instrumental, right? Like you, you would, you would hear that and you would sort of hear something in it or it, reminds you of something i'm always fascinated by how instrumental whether it's jazz musicians or like post-rock musicians choose the titles <laughs> oftentimes it's completely arbitrary but i assume yeah yeah sometimes it just it does evoke something more specific yeah sometimes and i think sometimes that's not that's why it's hard to remember the titles when it's just instrumental music i live in queens and i've, I've been stuck in my oh, right. bedroom apartment right for the pandemic. And there was a while when I like, wasn't, I, I got sick for a while and wasn't able to leave my apartment when we're all going through something like this. And when we do kind of lose connections with other people and our ability to, you know, sort of go out and experience the world in ways that we have previously, we find solace in unexpected places. I, I found a, a portal online where you can listen to people's ham radio transmissions. And I got kind of obsessed with that for a while. It was just sort of interesting to not eavesdrop exactly because, you know, they knew it was public, but just to hear, to kind of flip around the dial and hear random people that you would never hear again, talking about, you know, the weather in a small town in Georgia. And it's not exactly the same, but it sounds like the shipping forecast provided a similar kind of solace for the two of you. Absolutely. Yes. And, and that, and uh, listening to the, BBC shipping forecast, um, which I don't know if most people in the U.S. don't know what it is, but it happens 
think it happens three times a day, but we were listening to the one that happens at 1 a.m. GMT, but it happened around 7.45 here in Boston, and we could listen um, on the BBC radio app. And it's about 10 minutes long, and they describe the weather at sea uh, in all the, the areas around the British Isles. So it's very strange and mysterious if you, you don't know what's going on because they're just listing these names and listing these numbers. It also is very, very beautiful in some ways. And it's it has a great song that it opens with called Sailing By, which is sort of a, a 60s orchestral piece that in a way is really sappy and in a way is totally entrancing. And we started listening to that. Yes, and for us... The first place that we really toured a lot was in was in England, in Great Britain. And it somehow we have a very long connection to Great Britain for our music. We always played so much over there and it's we have had wonderful audience over there for years and I don't know it was you know it's where our first records came out it was where our first record label was rough trade somehow hearing the shipping forecast and hearing them just mention these names of all these places in Great Britain it was it felt very tied to the touring that we couldn't do and specifically that place so I think for us it's was very specifically because it was from Great Britain and because it was sort of traveling through it every night um, and hearing, you know, the, the different British accents, the different readers all have fantastic different versions of, of British accents, you know, Scottish accents, Welsh accents. <laughs> um, yeah, it was sort of like a, a small way to travel, to be on tour every night. So, of course, we had to write a song dedicated to uh, Sailing By, the theme song to The Shipping Forecast. <laughs> 